hope you guys have been having a great summer. It's just weird to me that I'm talking about fall kickoff. It's like, where did summer go? It's near the end of July already. And uh, this last month for me has been one filled with a lot of memories. Uh, had someone tell me uh, as I became a dad, they said, hey, here's what's true. Moments are fleeting, but memories are forever. He said, go make memories with your kids. You know, they might not remember every moment, but if you make memories, they'll last a lifetime. And this last month has been really special for me. I got the privilege of going back home to Northwest Iowa and preaching at one of my friend's churches. He was on sabbatical. And it brought back memories, uh, specifically memories of my dad, who passed away in 2016. Because apparently as I get older, as I remain five foot seven, and uh, as I continue to rock this mustache like my old man, people have said, you look so much like your dad. And it's brought up a lot of sweet memories, uh, but also a lot of like really hard, challenging memories. Uh, my dad spent the last nine months of his life on hospice, and I remember vividly Uh, When I was working in the insurance industry in Waverly, Iowa, getting a call from my mom, and she said, I think you should come home. And I spent the last two weeks of my dad's life by his side. Uh, A lot of, honestly, silence, a lot of tears, a lot of prayer, not a lot of interaction with my dad. At this point, he was um, really all but dead. He was dying from COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Terrible disease where essentially you die by suffocation. But I had this moment with my dad the day before he passed away. Maybe you've personally experienced this or have heard of this before where there's sort of this come to moment before death. My dad had one of those. It was fascinating, right? Suddenly, very aware, aware of his surroundings, aware of who was in the room with him, and he was able to speak. But you can imagine if you're suffocating to death, uh, you're going to be pretty choice on your words, right? Every word you speak is calculated. You're not there to small talk. And I remember my dad's last words. They're very pointed. Here's what my dad said to me. Jordan, keep following Jesus and take good care of your mom. He spoke about what was most important, right? From his vantage point to say, I'm going to use my last sentence to charge my son to do what's most important. Last words matter. And as we reach the end of the Gospel of Matthew today, we get another account of some last words. You know, last week we talked about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Anybody stoked about that? You ought to be. The fact that Jesus died in your place, bore your sin, took the wrath of God that you deserve, but he didn't stay dead. He resurrected. He defeated sin, death, and Satan for you to be in right relationship with the Father. And if we're honest with ourselves, the book of Matthew could have ended there. And we'd be like, sign me up, right? But it doesn't end there. Matthew does not end his account with the resurrection, but rather an interaction that Jesus has with his disciples. And you may have noticed on today's program, 
Today's sermon is titled, The Orders of Jesus. Jesus is about to depart from earth, ascend into heaven, and he gets these final words, a final interaction with his followers to speak a very calculated order, to make the most of the moment, and to talk to his people about what matters most. What do you think is most important to Jesus in that moment? What do you think the, the order or the command is that he would speak to his disciples knowing that he's about to ascend into heaven? I mean, if we don't know the text, here's what we may think. Be kind to everyone. Right? Wage war against injustice around you. Maybe feed the poor. House the orphan in your community. Maybe it's more introspective. Really read your Bible. Pray a lot. Follow me faithfully, even if you're persecuted. Here's what's true. Jesus didn't say any of that in his final words, actually. Not that these are bad things, but... The reality is he has a primary order that appears to be, to him, more important than these issues. And that should beg us to ask the question, well then what is most important to Jesus? What is the primary order that he would give us this morning? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28. I would encourage you to pull out your Bible. This is an important chapter for us as Christians. Uh, to defend the resurrection of Christ that really happened. Jesus really died and really rose again. And as you look at Matthew 28, there's a couple things that are important historically. The first is that Jesus first appears to two women by the name of Mary and Mary. And if this story was manufactured in the biblical era, Jesus would not have first shown up to women. But he does. And that's how it's recorded. I mean, historically, they would throw this book out and say, oh, it's discredited, but Jesus says, no, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show up to women because they matter to me, regardless of what culture says, and this is going to be recorded to prove that the, the resurrection really happened. And then you keep reading, and you have these soldiers before chief priests and elders who know that the resurrection really happened, and here's what they're doing, coming up with a lie. Let's come up with a lie to cover this up and try and prevent the gospel from spreading. And we're going to pay these soldiers to spread this message throughout all the area so that people don't actually believe that Jesus resurrected. All of that has happened. And then we get to this final passage here in the, in the gospel of Matthew. I'm going to read the first two verses for us. The word of God says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. This is fascinating. Like, imagine with me. These two women, Mary and Mary, have come to you and they've said, We have seen the resurrected Christ. And he wants you to go to Galilee so he can meet you there. And you're like... Sign me up, right? You climb up this mountain, and there you are, face to face with Jesus. And you have to think about, 
When was the last time you might have seen Jesus? Odds are, it was a few days before. And you weren't up close and personal. You watched from a distance as one of your dearest friends, as the Messiah, the Son of God, is whipped, beaten, mocked, and crucified in front of you. It's one of the last times you saw Jesus, and now you're face to face. You see his nail-scarred hands, and he's alive. You see two appropriate responses to this, right? The first is worship, right? The 11 disciples, they come and they worship, because here's what's true. If you would look at other gospel accounts, this is not their first interaction with Jesus post-resurrection, He showed up to them a couple other times, and they know this is legit. Jesus is alive. His promise is fulfilled. The temple was destroyed, and three days later, it was resurrected. Jesus was talking about his body. The disciples understand that, and they're now on this mountainside in Galilee saying, Jesus is Lord. I'm going to worship him with all that I have. But you notice in the text it says, some doubted. Now, there's debate upon what, who that those some are, but most people that would study the scriptures and look at historical context and you know, syntax of the sentence would say, this appears to be two different groups of people. You have the 11 disciples who respond in worship, but then you have this other group, some, who doubted. Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were some 500 brothers that Jesus revealed himself to post-resurrection. And all signs point to the fact that this might be those 500. You know, Jesus told Mary and Mary to go in the city and call my brothers to come see me. And he wasn't just talking about his initial disciples. He was saying, go call those who associate themselves with me. So you have this crowd gathered on a mountain, as Jesus would frequently do, and it says they doubted. But here's what's true. The word for doubt doesn't mean disbelief. It's not like they, you know, thought maybe this was just like a hologram of Jesus. They, they saw Jesus. They knew this was real. But they wrestled through the implications. Okay, if Jesus really did die and really did resurrect, what are we to do? Doubt communicates uncertainty about next steps. They were uncertain about what to do, where to go, how to respond to this reality that Jesus is alive. And here we see Jesus about to interact with both of these groups, gathered together, those who are all in with adoration, and those who are uneasy or uncertain about action. Jesus comes and he speaks to them the same words. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's good news, isn't it? Now, this passage, your Bible might even have a heading above it that says, The Great, what? Commission. How many of you have heard this passage before? I mean, 
Chances are, if you've spent time around the church, you've heard this passage before. And you should have. This is great news. But here's my fear, Veritas. My fear is that so many of us know this passage, but don't believe it. We're so familiar with this passage, but it hasn't shaped how we live. Because here's what's true. You can tell what you actually believe by looking at how you behave. Let me give you an example. I went to the Iowa Hawkeye football schedule this week, trying to look at their games, not because I want to go, because I'm a Cyclone fan. But, come on. Here's what's true. If you go to Iowa's football schedule, at the very bottom of the page, you're going to see an important date. December 2nd in Indianapolis. You know what it is? The Big Ten Championship. And they've put it on their schedule because somebody within the administration believes they're going to go there. I don't know, all right? But if you're a Hawkeye fan in the room this morning and you believe that they're going to win the Big Ten West, here's what you ought to do today. Go ahead and book your hotel room in Indy. <laughs> Knew I'd have one, right? Okay, if you believe it, I'm saying, wherever you're at, go book your hotel room. That'll show me if you believe. I mean, football aside, I have little kids who are potty training, and here's what's true. If I believe my two- and three-year-old are potty trained, I'll take a road trip with them in underwear. (laughs) I'll skip the pull-up. Ooh, I don't know. Do I believe they're potty trained? Maybe not. I think in both of those instances, very bold strategy, all right? Don't book your hotel room. I'll stick with pull-ups. But you can tell what you believe based upon how you behave. Maybe you guys have heard of a compliment sandwich. You guys ever heard of that before? When, whether someone's critiquing you or giving you, like, hard feedback, tough pill to swallow, they kind of sandwich it between two compliments, Try to make it easier to stomach. And here's what's true. In this text, we have what I'd like to call a promise sandwich. In between two promises that God has given us, we have a tough pill to swallow. We have a tough command to obey, and it stares us in the face this morning and leaves us uneasy. There's one imperative. There is one command. Do you know what it is in this text? Make disciples. Make disciples. Of all of the things that Jesus could have commanded his followers to do, he says, make disciples. He looks out and he acknowledges that the world does not need more caring people that are passionate about earthly causes. But rather, the world needs more Christian people that are passionate about eternal matters. Because here's what's true. If we do not know Jesus, everything we do in this life is temporary. Every single thing we do is temporary. No matter how big the task, it will not last. But if you know Jesus, if you are following him, every single thing you do is eternal. No matter how small the task, it matters. And so Jesus is beckoning 
not just be a follower of me, but go and make more followers of me. Go make disciples. You might say, okay, how? (laughs) How do I make disciples? I think most of us should get on board with, yes, sign me up. I want to make more disciples. I want more people to know about Jesus. How do we do that though? For you grammar geeks in the room, you know that there's a thing called a participle, which is a supporting word that goes into this phrase of making disciples. There's three words that come and support make disciples that tell us how we do it. I want to walk through them quickly together. The first is go. How many of you guys know what go means? Can you give me a definition without using the word? (laughs) It's really simple, isn't it? Go. Go means go. (laughs) Go means to proceed or move from one place to another. And before this interaction, we know that Jesus has met with the 11 disciples. In John 20, he tells them this. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Whoa! To be a recipient of Christ's grace... And then to say, here's what I'm calling you to do. Just like the Father sent me, now I am sending you. To be a Christian is to be sent. But the question we have to ask is, sent where? Or sent to who? Around here at Veritas, we have said that we ought to be intentional wherever God has us and be willing to go wherever God wants us. To be intentional wherever God has us. That means as you leave the building today, you are sent. You are sent to a people. You are sent to a neighborhood. Maybe to a workplace. You are sent to a friend group or a family. You are sent right now. But we also can't just run away from the reality of Matthew 28 that says, Make disciples of all nations. All nations. Now here at our church, we finished a couple series, Genesis and Revelation, to kind of cover these bookends of the Bible. And I want to point out that this all nations thing is not just a Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew thing. Genesis 12, God comes to Abram, he makes a covenant with him, and here's what he says. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. From Genesis, God is like, hey, all the earth deserves to know about me. Everyone everywhere should hear about Jesus Christ. And then you get to Revelation, Revelation 7. John gets this vision. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Wow. Every nation, tribe and tongue. Genesis to Revelation. Pastor and author John Piper has said this. Missions exist because worship doesn't. 
Missions exist because worship doesn't. We are called to go because there are people on the other side of the world who are not worshiping him. And he deserves to be worshiped. Amen, church? And so, we have to deal with this hard reality. 3.37 billion people, 42% of the world's population, do not have access to the gospel. 7,000 of the world's 17,000 ethnic groups remain unreached today. And that word unreached doesn't just mean that they haven't yet believed in Jesus. Here's what it actually means. They can't believe in Jesus because nobody's there to tell them. What? Is this great commission real? (laughs) There's one of two things that has to have happened between Matthew 28 and today. Either Jesus misspoke or we're not listening. And I think you know the answer. 3.37 billion people who will be born, will live their entire life, and who will die sentenced to an eternal death, having never heard about the hope that they could have in Jesus. Why? Because we want to stay comfortable? Ouch. It's confronting. And the reality is, if we want to get to the second participle of baptizing, we have to go. We have to be willing to go if we want to see people from these nations, tribes, and tongues saved. Paul says it this way in Romans 10. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. No matter where you're from or what you look like, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's great news. (laughs) But then, these questions. How then will they call on him... In whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Wow. We've got work to do. And maybe you've heard this quote before. It's quite common in our church today. Preach the gospel if necessary, use words. I want to just say, that's a load of baloney. (laughs) I understand the premise of, hey, don't live a hypocritical life. And to that I say, amen. But you cannot say, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. That's like saying, feed the poor if necessary, use food. Makes no sense. Because Romans 1.16 says, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And Paul in the book of Romans was not talking about living a really nice life is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. He, he actually means the literal good news of Jesus Christ. That he created people to live with him forever. That we have turned our backs on a holy God but that he would not leave us that way, but would send the person work of Jesus Christ to live the perfect life and die in our place so that we could be restored into right relationship with our Father. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And we are called to be a people that are sent and to confront people in a loving way and to call them to repentance and faith. Will you stop trying to be the Lord of your own life and trust in the one who died in your place? What do you think? And here's what we see a repeated theme happen in the New Testament scriptures. People say, what must I do to be saved? I would love that interaction, right? What must I do? And they say, hey, repent, believe, and then what? Be baptized. It's this next participle. Baptizing does not make somebody a disciple. Let me be clear. The Holy Spirit coming into your life and changing your desires, God himself, by grace, through faith, makes you a disciple. But here's what's also true. Faithful followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus who listen to his commands, will choose to be obedient to baptism. It's an invitation to those who have said, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, to enter into a body of water, and you may note in this text, it says to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's implying, I am now under God's authority. And Romans 6 talks about baptism as this way of becoming unified with Christ in a public symbolic act. As we would go under the water to say, just like Christ died, the old me is dead and gone. And as I come up out of the water, just like Christ resurrected and raised from death to life, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. We're invited into this baptism to proclaim, yes, I am with Jesus, but also to let this faith community say, they're with Jesus. It invites a level of accountability that's helpful, that we can have people fight for our holiness, people that can call us to a standard of godliness. But here's what's true with baptism. I've noticed this a lot. Baptism is not a mark of Christian maturity. It's a mark of Christian beginning. I'll say that again. Baptism is not a mark of Christian maturity, but of Christian beginning. And so if you're in the room this morning and you're like, this is really awkward. I've followed Jesus for 20 years and I still haven't been baptized. Is that good enough reason to not obey? (laughs) Or maybe you're relatively new to following Jesus and you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know the Bible stories well enough yet. Is the old you dead and gone? Is the new you here? Has Christ made you alive? Get baptized. It's an invitation and it is an act of obedience that we are called to follow. But something has to happen beyond this Christian beginning, right? I mean, this is one of the greatest tragedies in the American church over the last several decades is that we've almost become complacent with putting people in a tank and letting them get wet and then saying, good luck. That's not how the story ends of making disciples. Yes, baptize them, but also teach them. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Because you will note in this text, Jesus does not say, go therefore and make converts of all nations. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And the word disciple means learner or follower. You need help 
to know how to follow Jesus. And here's what's true. If you followed Jesus for any amount of other time, people need you to help them follow Jesus. But to obey this command of teaching, two things are necessary. You need to, number one, have a desire for God. You have to want to know the scriptures. You have to want to live a a life of godliness that you could, to the best of your ability, say to somebody, follow me as I follow Christ, which we all know that's imperfect, right? But beyond this desire for Christ, you also need to live in community. You cannot be obedient to this text alone. Because then who are you teaching? Who's teaching you? We all are in desperate need, and we all have something to offer. So here's the command, Figuretas Church. Make disciples. Make more followers of Jesus. Make more of what Christ has made of us. That's what we're invited into, and here's how we do it. We go, we baptize, and we teach. So let me just ask you personally, how's that going? Probably pretty tough. But I want us to be like these people, okay? Put yourself back in the story. Jesus is alive. Can I get an amen? Jesus is alive. He has said, hey, come meet me in Galilee. And you hike up this mountain to Galilee, and now you're face to face with your Savior. Do you think the win of the Great Commission is to sit here and make you feel guilty and full of shame? Is that the win? No, that's not the win. That's not what we're here for today. We're not here to hang our head and ho-hum about how awful we have been at making disciples. We are here to be spurred on to follow Jesus and to do so joyfully. And in order to swallow this tough pill of go make disciples that we, if we're honest with ourselves, have failed at, we get this promise sandwich, (laughs) right? We get two promises that are actually meant to spur us on to obedience. I want to look at them together. The first promise that we have, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The promise of Christ's power. That he's looking at these people and he's like, guess what? The kingdom's mine. (laughs) Many of these people would have known Daniel 7, which was prophesied long before Jesus came. Daniel 7 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heavens there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Here's the promise. Christ is king. He cannot be defeated. His kingdom will not be destroyed. Jesus told his disciples, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He looks at a bunch of people who denied him and he says, my grace is sufficient for you. From the cross, I declared, it is finished. And guess what? 
I am Lord, not you. Maybe we've forgotten that promise. That he's Lord of all. That his kingdom lasts. And that means that our kingdom doesn't last. (laughs) That we are not Lord. That most frequently we actually need to get out of the way to let him do his thing through us. Most frequently, we do not go and make disciples because we are worried about the outcome. Let me ask you, church, is God mighty to save? How do you know? Because he saved you. And here's what's true. You are the worst sinner you know. You don't know anybody more sinful than you. And if Jesus can save you, he can save anybody. You have to believe that deep in your bones. Jesus, if you can save me, you can save anybody. And I have seen that you are mighty to save, so who could you not save? Let's go, right? Gives us confidence that we need to step into hard conversations and believe the gospel is too good and too powerful to not create a movement. It gives us the confidence we need as we look at Christ's power. But we have to look at the end of this passage. Jesus gives this command, and you would think, maybe end with the command. Maybe that's the most pointed. But no, he gives another promise. He says, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I mean, Matthew 1, this word was given to Mary and Joseph. Hey, you shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the strict translation of always says the whole of every day. Isn't that comforting? That Jesus gives this huge mission, honestly terrifying mission. Say, go make disciples of all nations, you few people. But then he gives us the comfort of his presence. Says, no matter how your day goes. No matter how your week goes, whether you would say, man, I feel the power of God, or whether you say, man, I feel the pain of God. Whether you enter into conversations and people repent and believe, or whether you enter into conversations and people reject you, Jesus says, I'm with you. The whole of every day, I'm with you. And if you're anything like me, you struggle thinking about what would happen if. What would happen if I confront this person with the gospel? What would happen if it split our family? What would happen if it ended our friendship? What would happen if... And Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm with you. Always, to the end of the age. You can experience perfect intimacy with me right now. And you will forever. You have the belonging you need in Christ. So now you're set free to say, regardless of the outcome, my soul is satisfied in Jesus because I belong to him. And now if we take these two promises and say, Christ is powerful. He's going to push back the gates of hell. And Christ is present. He has satisfied my soul. And there are so many people in our world who are not satisfied. It only makes sense that we would go, doesn't it? 
It's the appropriate response to take this command, which maybe within the last 15 minutes felt like, oh, this is something I have to do. And I am here to tell you, you have to do it. (laughs) If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to obey. But when you think about these promises, Christ's power and Christ's presence, isn't it more of a, I get to? Like, what a holy invitation that Jesus would say, hey, I want to make more Christ followers. I want to see my kingdom advance, and here's who I want to use. You. Matthew 28 continues to be written to this day because people have been obedient to this text, right? From a have to to a get to. And so when you think about this final command, what the primary purpose of the orders of Jesus would be, you could say it this way. Make disciples with confidence in Christ's power and the comfort of his presence. Make disciples with confidence in Christ's power and the comfort of his presence. And I really just have two applications for us today. The first is to believe the promises. I think it has to start there. To start with genuinely believing God is powerful. He is Lord. His kingdom will not be stopped. He's going to build his church. And no matter what happens to me, whether I feel success or failure, guess what? Jesus is with me. In God's presence is pleasure forevermore. And I want to be close to him. I want to be obedient to him. Yes, believe those promises. Be changed by the promise of Jesus Christ. And then, yes, be obedient. Make disciples. Make disciples. Maybe you need to ask this week, God, who are you sending me to? You ought to ask that every week. Who are you sending me to? And maybe this week he'll bring a coworker to your mind a friend to your mind, a teammate to your mind. But maybe as you continue to pray this prayer, God, who are you sending me to? He's not going to cast a vision that's one week old. He's going to say, get up and move. Move your family. Move across the nation. Move across the globe. Because I'm sending you. Who's God sending you to? And then, of course, share. Share the gospel. Look at the act of baptism. If you haven't been baptized, maybe that's an appropriate step for you. Say, man, I want to be obedient to the point of baptism. But maybe this next baptism service we have in August, you should be more confronted by asking the question, is anybody getting baptized because of the way I've been praying and pursuing the mission of God? And lastly... Teach. Who are you teaching? Who's teaching you? Are you in those type of relationships where you acknowledge, I need help following Jesus, and I want to help other people follow Jesus? Let's make disciples. And it's crazy to me to look at this room and think, if these men on a mountain in Galilee were not obedient, we would not be here. You ever think about that? (laughs) When Jesus told them, like, all nations, all peoples, that includes us. (laughs) And we would not be here if not for the obedience of these men. 
And I think the question we have to ask is, will anybody else ever say something like that of our church? Or maybe of us personally. Man, I would not be here if not for Veritas planting a church. I would not be here if not for this person sharing the gospel with me at work. I hope the negative contrast of that like bothers you. But the positive side of it to say, man, how sweet would it be if we embody this text and say, man, we want to make disciples, we want to plant churches, and we want to go to the ends of the earth. We want to go to the nations because God deserves to be worshipped. And that we would just get to see God's power and God's presence put on display. And that one day we'd get to worship with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because Jesus did the work through us. Amen? Let's pray together. Um, Father, we confess... That far too often, Lord, we, we want to be Lord of our lives. Rather than go, we want to stay. Rather than share, uh, we want to stay on the surface. Rather than teach, uh, we'd rather consume. And that is not from you. Um, Jesus, thank you that you were sent that you came to us because we could not get to you. You died in our place and you didn't stay dead. Thank you that you rose again. You've invited us now into resurrection life. And because of your authority and your presence, you've given us resurrection purpose. God, I pray that you would use Veritas Church, that you would use each heart in this room, to make disciples of all nations. Jesus, that we would be satisfied in you and from that place that we would be sent by you, sent for you, and sent with you wherever you would lead us because you deserve to be worshipped by all creation, every people, every tribe, every tongue. And thank you that you are good on your word, that one day we will stand arm in arm we will see Revelation 7 9 lived out in front of us, and you will get all the glory, not us. You deserve it, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.